In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today our readings center around the formation and identity of the people of God. Much of the whole story of Scripture is a story of the relationship between God and a group of people that he has brought together for himself. And so I want to spend some time looking at how the people of God are described and formed and what God asks of them. Two weeks ago at Pentecost, I mentioned that the event that we commemorate as the birth of the church happened on the Jewish festival that commemorated the giving of the law, defining how the people of God would live. That's the moment we read about this morning in Exodus 19. In the passage, we get a summary of the kind of people who would live by that law. The house of Jacob, as in people descended from a nobody, that grew in Egypt into this nation of Israelites were to be for God a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Now, a priestly kingdom isn't like other kingdoms. This is a picture for God's people that gets reiterated again in the New Testament, notably in Revelation, and forms the basis for the concept familiar to us Protestants, the priesthood of all believers. Priestly kingdom is, in a sense, a contradiction in terms. For everyone to be priests means that there isn't someone at the top, a king with a unique connection to God. But it is helpful for us that the non-hierarchical nature of this identity applies to each and every person. When thinking about the identity of God's people, then, it can be easy to jump right into the responsibility for God's people to do certain things, especially here as they are about to receive the law. Now, I will get to that, but before we do, let's dwell on how God talks about the identity of these people that he has formed. Here in Exodus, he reminds them of how he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them out of Egypt. Picture how eagles take care of their young with compassion and protection, strength and watchfulness. This isn't a picture simply of speed, but of care. Jesus uses similar language when he laments over Jerusalem, saying, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Here God says in Exodus that he wants them to be a treasured possession for him. How easily do we slip into that Marcionite heresy, seeing the Old Testament God as wrathful and angry, only to be softened by Jesus? But remember how the central metaphor in the Old Testament to illustrate this relationship between God and Israel is that of a bridegroom and a bride. Israel's unfaithfulness cuts at God like a cheating spouse. We don't have to wait until 1 John to hear that God is love. It is written all throughout Scripture. God loves us. End of sentence, full stop. Now, if we were to isolate the first four chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, our only understanding of God might be one who is wrathful and angry, dispassionately rendering judgment. Romans 5, which we read from today, functions as an answer to those first four chapters. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, Sometimes we lean too heavily into a picture of atonement, into a theory in which God the Father is upset for us, and Jesus placates our angry dad. For certain, Paul writes of us being saved from wrath, but we need to be sure not to divide the Godhead, creating competing interests. God's love is poured out through the Spirit, and it's shown in the death and resurrection of the Son. 
Not when we were healthy and lovable, but when we were sick, when we were in rebellion. And Paul says that what we receive through the work of Christ is peace with God, reconciliation, the restoration of a broken relationship. Now, Romans was likely written before Luke's gospel, but I wonder if Paul had the parable of the prodigal son that Luke records in his mind. God the Father, standing and waiting, overjoyed that the child who had wronged him had returned. This overwhelming love that God has, especially for his covenant people, his bride, helps to shed some light on Jesus' insistence that his disciples don't go into the towns of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. The mission of the disciples wouldn't always be limited. In fact, we occasionally see Jesus reaching beyond those boundaries in the gospel, healing non-Israelites. And Jesus is explicit in his post-resurrection commissions that the disciples are meant to take the good news to the ends of the earth. But here, at first, God's people get a chance to repent, first before anyone else. We shouldn't miss that when Jesus sends out his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, it's only a few verses after Matthew tells us that when looking upon the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God's desire is for his people and for their repentance so that they might become the people who are his, his treasured possession, the kingdom of priests as he intended. The harvest is plentiful, plentiful. The people are ready and willing if someone would but invite them in. And here's where I want to pivot from who God's people are in the sight of God to how those people are called to live. Because just after Jesus tells the disciples to pray for laborers, he sends them out to do the work. A wonderful word of caution for all of us that when our hearts are stirred by a need, we might often be the answer to our own prayers for God to act. Back in Romans, Paul does something that I think happens frequently in his letters. He reminds his readers of who they are so that they might live into that reality. We see it in a few places. Later, in Romans 6, when Paul writes that those who have been baptized into Christ are baptized into newness of life, he tells them, So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians, when he's trying to tell the people in Corinth to abstain from sexual immorality, he tells them, Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We often take these promises as things that the non-believer can anticipate or look forward to when they accept Christ or when they are baptized. But we have to remember, Paul is always writing his letters to the already baptized. And so when he brings up and invokes these metaphors, these pictures of what happens to us when we become Christians, the things that are true about us, he's speaking past tense for his readers. He's reminding them of who they are. So when he tells them in Romans chapter 5 of their peace with Christ, he's reminding them that they are people greatly loved by God for whom Christ has died and already bought, brought peace and reconciliation. And because of that, he gives these exhortations and encouragements to live into that reality. Father Mike Strachan, who served here as a priest for a number of years before being called to serve in Florida, once put it to me this way, that sanctification is the process of becoming who we already are in Christ. And for Paul, the reality of this status gives us the foundation that we need to go through suffering and even boast in it 
because it will produce endurance, character, and hope which does not disappoint. And this doesn't simply take place after our reconciliation, but because of it, because of who we are, this is what happens. That kind of confidence we have in the process is based on Jesus himself. Paul employs a common biblical turn of phrase here, the the how much more. Jesus uses it when talking about how God feeds birds and clothes the flowers of the fields. How much more would God take care of our daily needs? Here, Paul uses it to say, if God has proven his love for us by dying for us when we were still sinners, if we were brought from wrath into righteousness, then won't God also save us? And here salvation is more than our ticket punched for the golden city with pearly gates. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It's being brought through the trials of the world and living into the abundant life we receive in Christ. God's love is shown to us not only in creating a kingdom, but forming us into that kingdom. You don't reconcile people who are, who are at odds with each other simply to reach the end point. This isn't a Disney movie where we end with the wedding. There is a life and a relationship that follows. If we think about it in terms of what's going on at Mount Sinai, God had already back in Genesis made a promise and made a people. And the promise was to bless them and bless the world through them without condition. The promises to Abraham and Jacob do not include faithfulness on their part. Here in Exodus, though, there is the condition about following the law in order to become that priestly kingdom, the holy nation, becoming more and more of who they already were. And Paul will argue that those who are in Christ are the inheritors of those promises of the Old Testament. And the priestly language continues. When Paul says that we have access to this grace, it's the kind of language you would use for ones who have access to the temple, the kind of thing that priests do. So, what does that sanctification, that becoming, look like for us? It's very easy, especially in a pulpit, to throw around platitudes about growing in hope and endurance and keep it at that. Good feelings, thoughts and prayers, inspirational tidbits for a spiritual life, distant and intangible, just enough to make us go, hmm, but never to make us uncomfortable. May it never be so. Here's what it looked like for Jesus' disciples. They had been witnessing Jesus' miracles, but now they were being sent out to do the same, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of heaven was near, and then curing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. The good news of the kingdom looked like good news for those who were suffering. I think it's actually an interesting assessment tool for our own proclamation of the good news of God. If it doesn't actually feel like good news to anyone then maybe something isn't quite right. If we have to convince people that the gospel is actually good news through our rhetoric, then maybe we have to do some rethinking about our methodology. To be fair, Paul does write about the folly of the gospel. There is certainly something unintelligible about what God has done, something nonsensical about the upside-down kingdom of God where the last are first and the first are last, and that the cross behind me is the enthronement But that isn't because it's contrary to reality, but because it is actually more real than what the world offers. Our sanctification and our proclamation of the gospel should be like that. More participation in reality, not less. It should feel more real. 
I can't give you a point-by-point -point list of what this looks like in your life. There really aren't one-size-fits-all applications to God's call on our lives. But if we look out into the world like Jesus did, seeing pain and suffering of those around us, it seems to me that our response should be like his, compassion and presence. And stemming from that, a desire for those around us not only to hear the good news, but to experience it as well. God has declared that those who are in Christ are the people of God because he has loved us and died for us, not when we were righteous, but when we were not. Start by taking rest in that. Paul meant for us to hear that and steep ourselves in the deep waters of God's love for us. But then, allow that love to transform us and overflow from us out into the world, enduring suffering, declaring that the kingdom of heaven is near, healing the sick, Seeing the hurt of the world, those who do not know that they are loved by God and inviting them into the more real life of God's kingdom, of the world that is to come. Healing those who are sick and diseased, those who are oppressed, those who are hurting, bringing them good news. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will put it like this, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those who are in prison. And so as the world around us is in turmoil, as injustice and suffering seem to be everywhere, and as we feel powerless in the midst of it all, may we be encouraged by the reality that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly, and that God has made us a kingdom of priests. And then if we are declared to be in the right, justified by the blood of Christ, how much more will he continue that work in our lives? May we lean in and learn to participate more fully in that reality, more real than any of the suffering we endure. May that reality push us out into the world so that we might preach the good news of the kingdom in word and in deed. Amen.